<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, I am Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories, where we read the short stories for you so you don't have to. Yes, so you can find all of our previous episodes on our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. And tonight's episode is episode eight of season three. And this name sounds really familiar. It's <laughs> Megan Morrison. Megan, I think that might be you. Is this your short story? This is my short story. Oh, and it's called Insight Out, a love story. That's right, here we go. Inside Out, a love story by Megan Morrison. Prologue, mom. Tell me goodbye before you go, Billy, Tabitha's mother says from the hospital bed as Tabitha walks toward the door. Tabitha rolls her eyes. She's 21 years old and she never wants to act more like a brat than when she is around her mother. I've already told you goodbye three times, Tabitha says. I'm going now. Tabitha's phone beeps and she sneaks a check. When you come back and I'm dead, says Billy, smoothing down the bedsheet with her hand and piercing Tabitha with a coquettish glance, how are you going to feel? Tabitha knows the truth is not the right play here. Relieved, says Tabitha, practically guffawing. Oh, please, says Billy, exasperated, popping the pretense of flirtation. Your sense of humor is cancerous. Tabitha cuts her off, daring her mother to retort. Billy narrows her eyes into her signature deadly slits, and Tabitha holds her breath. A match has been struck, and the slightest movement will snuff it out before it has time to catch. Is today the day her mother comes back to life? Their dynamic has always been this. Billy solicits, Tabitha antagonizes, Billy suggests, Tabitha jabs, round after round until Tabitha's smartassery forces Billy to release a spectacular retaliation full of razor sharp invectives and passionate linguistic diatribes. In the aftermath of such explosions, Billy sighs and her eyes cloud with regret. Tabitha, on the other hand, feels relieved victorious at having brought out such a brilliantly destructive part of her mother. One time after Billy released a particularly robust cacophony of expletives, Billy asked Tabitha, why do you insist on bringing out the worst in me? Tabitha stared at her as though to ask, are you serious? You really don't know? Billy's outbursts, although hurtful, were when she was at her most vibrant and Tabitha relished watching her mother the pinnacle of female example in the glory of her full personality. Instead of cowering from the danger of her mother in that state, Tabitha stepped closer, leaned in. She wanted to soak up as much of Billy as possible. So maybe, just maybe, she too could learn how to be so true to herself one day, whenever she found out who that person was. And so the back and forth, the push and pull, the antagonization between mother and daughter continued as it had for as long as Tabitha could remember. It was the script to which the two of them dressed Tabitha for school, did her homework, brushed her teeth at night. It was the script to which the two of them had processed the first diagnosis, 
decided which college Tabitha would attend, gone through the second and third rounds of chemotherapy. Their time together was a steady stream of Tabitha pushing Billy over her limit. But something shifted recently, and no matter how much Tabitha provoked, her mother never reached her catharsis, no longer had angry outbursts reticent with the authenticity. So Tabitha walked around in a perpetual state of tension and uncertainty. But now with the word cancerous hanging in the air, the fire in Billy seems to have caught, illuminating the part of herself that Tabitha so desperately longs for. Tabitha perks up. She closes her eyes, tilting her head toward the ceiling, exposing her neck, bracing herself for the verbal daggers, smiling with the anticipation of her wounds. But nothing happens. The room is quiet until Tabitha's phone beeps again. When Tabitha opens her eyes, Billy sighs into the hospital bed, exhausted, and Tabitha notices tears rolling down her mother's cheeks. She turns away, terrified. I'm sorry to disappoint you, daughter, Billy says, her voice thick. But you are not the cruel person you try desperately to make people think you are. Oh, yes, I am, thinks Tabitha. Tabitha told her mother she was going to the hospital cafeteria, but really, when she walks out of the room, she will take the elevator down to the main entrance and walk right out of the hospital with no intention of ever coming back. No more sleeping on hospital furniture, never meant for sleeping. No more subsisting on hospital food, never meant for the well. No more living in the perpetual gloam that is a dying parent. Well, two dying parents. They were calling inside-out disease a death sentence, even if it didn't kill you right away. Tabitha's phone beeps a third time. It's Trent, a guy from her ancient philosophy class who's invited her to see a band in the quad tonight. She thinks he might be cute. He ha she hasn't really decided yet. He wants to know when she'll be back on campus. She wants to show Billy a picture of Trent and ask her mother's opinion on his cuteness, but she decides against it. She's going it alone from now on. Tabitha chokes back her own tears. I'll be back, she says to her mother from the doorway. Look at me, Billy says. Tabitha turns back to look at her mother. Billy holds out her skeletal arms, two tibias, two ulnas, metacarpals, all thinly veiled in a pasty gray shroud of skin cells. The humorous bones make a crude circle in which Tabitha is summoned to enter. Tabitha must admit there is something comforting in the ugliness, so she lets her mother's decay surround her and poke her with its snobs. It holds her tight, so tight Tabitha feels constricted and bruised, but she relaxes into the tightness of her mother's hug, knowing this is where she will learn how to be a real person if she can just stay here forever. Don't get another soda, Billy says, pushing Tabitha away, her eyes once again dry. I've seen you drink four in the past three days. That's too much sugar. My body can handle it, Tabitha says, right on script. Billy is flippant like a switchblade. That's what your father said about styrofoam. Tabitha's father is a subject that elicits the true Billy better than any other. But even Tabitha has boundaries, normally. You never took a sip from a styrofoam cup and look at you, Tabitha says. You're dying, he's not. Well, not immediately. And before she can stop herself, she adds, I'd say he has the upper hand. The words, he has the upper hand, suck the air from the room. 
Tabitha holds her breath. If anything can get a rise out of Billy, it is the implication that her ex-husband is somehow superior. He knows I'm dying, right? You told him, Billy says, stone-faced. Tabitha avoids her eyes. This was a mistake. I'm sure he knows, Tabitha says. He hasn't come to visit, says Billy. He's about to transition again, Tabitha says. Mistake, mistake, mistake. I think he's otherwise occupied. That man has more excuses than God, Billy says. There are 53 steps from the doorway of Billy's room to the elevator, a 30-second ride down five floors to the lobby, then another 104 steps through the ground floor hallway, following the wide yellow line to the automatic double doors at the front of the hospital. The doors swing open to let visitors out without having to lift a finger. Tabitha imagines walking through these doors. The warm, sticky humidity of the night outside will smother the cool, thick, antiseptic smell of the hospital, and she will take big gulps to fill herself with a new life. Billy grasps Tabitha's hand. I want him to know when I'm dead, she says. They'll tell, they'll tell him, Tabitha says, trying to pull away. No, says Billy. I want you to tell him. Tabitha shrinks inside herself. She is 13 again, passing messages between her parents. Before the divorce, she had been their postal service, collecting subversive thorns and angry barbs on her person like human Velcro. Then the recipient parent would rip them off, leaving oozing wounds that eventually crusted, but never healed because there were always more messages for her to pass along, more shots to be fired. The battle was for the last word and neither would ever back down. Okay, fine, Tabitha says, the lie clear in her voice. Her mother holds tight. Promise me, says Billy. Tabitha meets Billy's eyes and feels impaled. The previously dull eyes burn, burn brighter than even a few minutes ago. Instead of the verbal whip, her mother has played the longer game for a bigger payoff, a promise she knows Tabitha will not reject. Sneaky bitch. Even on her deathbed, she is a grade-A manipulator. Tabitha did not plan on visiting her father again. The detour back to his room is over a thousand steps away each way, and the last train back to campus leaves in half an hour. This means Tabitha will miss her date with Trent and the start of her new life. I promise, Tabitha says to Billy meekly, I'll tell him. Billy smiles, leaning back, her calm facade restored. When I'm dead, he'll have to live without me, Billy says. Then we'll see who has the upper hand. Part one, dad. Tabitha's father, Frederick, has inside-out disease, a disease that causes an organ, just a kidney if you're lucky, the whole intestine if you aren't, to push through tissue, muscle, tendons, capillaries, and skin, and exist on the outside of your body for any given amount of time. Then the organ reverses, pushing back through the blood and guts into your body where it belongs. It might go through this transition once and only once, or it might do this several times in a row. And just because your kidney transitioned this time doesn't mean the gallbladder won't transition the next. The doctors cannot pin down the why of the when, which infuriates Tabitha. Over the course of her parents' diseases, Tabitha has learned doctors are great in a sprint. Say you slam your bicycle into a tree and break your leg, 
or if you piss someone off and they shoot you. But the nebulous marathon illness, the cancer, the inside out disease, it's all a crapshoot. Tabitha leaves her mother's room and walks two wards over to her father's room. When she arrives, she is informed Frederick's organ, the liver, has not transitioned yet. This is not the first time it's happened though, so he knows the symptoms, excruciating cramps, fever, muscle seizures, and spasms. The first time he went to the hospital prior to diagnosis, the doctors leaned in speculatively and asked him about his exposure to styrofoam. 10 years ago, how many cups of coffee was he drinking? Frederick worked his way up from a bank teller in the pit to an executive with a corner office. That's a long way to climb up ream after ream of little white styrofoam cups. Upon hearing this, the doctors nodded and explained how Frederick's prolonged exposure to heated styrofoam was more than likely pushing his liver out of his body. As with most people, Frederick was horrified by his diagnosis, but more than anything, he was pissed because his ex-wife was right. Don't tell your mother. Frederick told a teenage Tabitha through clenched teeth when he first broke the news of his disease to her. They were sitting in a round table in a linoleum-lined eat-in kitchen, the only piece of furniture in his sad bachelor apartment. He stabbed at his plate of microwave lasagna and grumbled the incoherent words of the resentful. She's going to find out, said Tabitha. She cares more about your life now than she ever did when you were married. He tries to keep his voice even, reserved, but his hand began to shake and his eyes bugged out. It's none of her business, he screamed. Although usually an affable, some might say, easygoing man, Frederick was a live wire when it came to Billy. For years, Billy told Frederick he should drink from a glass mug. She left one on the kitchen counter every morning. Number one husband, it said, in blue block letters on a white background a doofus little stick man holding flowers beside the declaration. Use the mug, Billy said. So many chemicals in styrofoam, she'd read studies. Oh, is that what you do all day? Frederick asked, straightening his tie and walking out the door with his briefcase, as Billy, in her robe, narrowed her eyes over her own steaming coffee mug, and Tabitha, from her spot at the breakfast nook, watched her mother file away the comment, a bullet to be fired later. When Tabitha walks into Frederick's hospital room, the doctor is examining him. Frederick, an attractive man whose handsomeness is sliding down his face and gathering under his chin, does his best to smile at his daughter. There she is, Frederick says. Is everything okay? Tabitha asks the doctor. We're going to run some tests. The doctor says. He tells Tabitha sometimes other organs that aren't transitioning fail during the process. We call that sympathy failure. The doctor says. Like sympathy pains? Tabitha asks. Yes. Tabitha frowns at this logic. But aren't sympathy pains fake? Mm, yes. The doctor loops his stethoscope around his neck. But these organs that fail aren't faking it, persists Tabitha. They are reacting to the stress around them. Exactly. So sympathy failure is real, Tabitha asks. Mm, yes, the doctor says. Doctors and their double talk. 
Tabitha feels the cells of her skin tingling like radiation welling from inside of her. She thinks of herself as radioactive, tattooed with a black and yellow emblem on her forehead. And then she thinks of spitting on the doctor and the horror that would flash on his face as he realized too late, he is now marked with an accelerated time bomb of corporal decay. And as her skin calms, Tabitha smiles at the lingering thought of his comeuppance. When inside out disease first came on the scene, there was absolute panic. No one knew what caused it or how it spread. Airborne? No, the infection rate wasn't rapid enough. Babies and children seem immune. Sexually transmitted? The zealots shrieked of a holy cleansing. Only people weren't dying, really, they were suffering. And it wasn't just a few people, it was everyone, whether you were infected or not. Those who had it suffered because they saw their insides on their outsides, which should be hidden, exposed in all its ooey gooey glory. Those who didn't have it suffered because they couldn't bear to see it on others. Everyone questioned their immortality. They were embarrassed and ashamed. Why do I have so many parts inside me? Am I only goop? How can my liver be so fat? Some became so distraught with the thought of getting inside-out disease, they drowned themselves in their clawfoot bathtubs. There were mass suicides of people throwing themselves off bridges into dry ravines. It was all so ugly and unsanitary. Behind closed doors, agnostics and believers alike whispered, maybe the zealots were onto something. It was the end of days. Then the scientists isolated the culprit, a binding chemical found in styrofoam. When heated, this chemical mutates into what they named the sleeper toxin. This toxin attaches itself to an organ tissue and tells the organ it is threatened by the cells surrounding it. The scientists still don't know why the immune system doesn't kick in. Some speculate the sleeper toxin suppresses it. Since the organ is unable to attack the perceived threat, the organ runs from the cells it thinks are dangerous by pushing itself out of the body. The doctors call this cowarding. These names are very patronizing, Tabitha points out to her father's doctor as he walks around Frederick's bedside, listening to his torso from different angles. What do you hear, Doc? Frederick asks, his voice tight. What's happening? Sympathy failure, cowarding, Tabitha lists off the names. What's the name of the enzyme that the other organs produce to push out the transitioning organ? The bully enzyme. The doctor listens closely to her father's heart. Nothing unusual here, Mr. Ellison. It's not my heart, then? No, it's not your heart, says the doctor. Your heart's in great shape. Strong, lean. I'd say you have the heart of a man half your age. Frederick beams with pride despite his pain. I like to stay fit, Frederick says. But I really feel it in my chest. Well, think it's just the liver, the doctor says. The bully enzyme, says Tabitha, stepping in front of the doctor, invading his personal space, also derogatory. It helps the organ transition, right? That's a misnomer. Bullies don't help, they hinder. If there was no bully enzyme, the organ wouldn't have the strength to transition, 
says the doctor. Do you realize how much energy it takes to push an organ through a mass of tissue and muscle and bone? That's not a natural course for an organ to take. No shit. This bully enzyme is basically pure strength and pressure. The doctor says. So enzyme, huh, kiddo? Frederick says through clenched teeth. Someone will eventually isolate an enzyme. The doctor continues. Clone it and sell it to athletes in lieu of steroids. Then we've got a real problem on our hands. Tabitha gathers spit in her mouth, but before she can do anything else, the doctor walks out of the room, and a young guy about Tabitha's age, wearing a red and white striped polo, walks into the room with a bucket of ice water and a sponge. He and the doctor do a little obnoxious handshake. It is obvious this guy works out. His polo is one size too small. He reminds Tabitha of the spoiled jocks she goes to college with. Attractive, smart, too privileged to be anything but chill. He smiles a friendly hello and Tabitha frowns, wrinkling her nose like his smile was a giant fart. He doesn't flinch. Mr. E, you want me to ice you down? says Buff Guy. Patients with inside-out disease tend to have higher body temperatures due to the extra energy expended during the transition. No, Scott, that's okay. Frederick says, but Tabitha can tell he would like it. I'm visiting with my daughter. Scott turns his attention back to Tabitha, still smiling a big grin. Daughter? Scott says. I was afraid you were going to say wife. Ew. Who is this guy? Tabitha wonders. He's probably early 20s, but talks in sitcom dad cliches. This is something Tabitha only tolerates in her father, and even then, just barely. <laughs> She's just as pretty as her mother. Frederick says, beaming. Tabitha's breath catches, as though she stuck her head in the freezer. Did her father just compliment her mother? It's nice to see a pretty face around here. No offense, Mr. E. Scott winks at Tabitha. She scowls. Where is the lovely missus? Scott asks. Ex-missus, Tabitha says aggressively. She's in the cancer ward, dying. Scott continues to smile, but Tabitha catches the vein bulge from the middle of his forehead. Gotcha. Not so pretty anymore, am I? Tabitha says. Well... Scott says, shrugging, but also squinting at her as though he is adjusting a previous assumption in order to see her more clearly. Uh, I'll stop by later in case you change your mind, Mr. E. Okie dokie, Scott. Frederick says as he leans back and closes his eyes in another spasm. Scott leaves the room. Is your mother really dying? Frederick asks in a raspy whisper, recovering from the wave of pain. You know she is, Tabitha says. He jabs his thin pointer finger in Tabitha's face. Frederick's jaw clenches, transforming his face into something red, almost molten. When he speaks, he almost spits the words. You tell your mother. Tabitha waits, leaning in so she's close enough for him to lay the words upon her. But then his jaw relaxes and he smiles at Tabitha and pats her head and asks if she will be a sweetheart and pick him up a soda. Tabitha says sure, and she wonders 
anxiously how Billy will, will react when Tabitha returns to her empty-handed. Part two, Tabitha. When Tabitha returns to Billy's room, her mother is dead, just like Billy said she would be. In the cold and silent room, Tabitha sits down in the chair next to her mother's body and waits for the relief to wash over her. Billy doesn't look peaceful. Her blue eyes are wide open and her hands grip the bedsheet. Her emaciated face was gallish while living. Now that Billy stopped breathing, Tabitha is reminded of skeletons covered in cobwebs discovered many, many years later in abandoned ships, in for forgotten caves, or imprisoned in tombs. Tabitha thinks the hair-raising look of fright on a skeleton must not be something it develops over years of neglect after its flesh is decayed and its bones are exposed, but rather it is the look that death freezes immediately on the corpse all the way down to the bones. No nurses come by. Tabitha continues to wait. Hey. In the doorway, Scott stands, still in his red and white striped polo. He has replaced his grin with a slightly furrowed brow of concern. She wonders how long it took him to rearrange his face. Scott takes a couple of steps into the room, taking in Billy's still form. What do you want? asked Tabitha. I just wanted to check in on you, says Scott, almost sheepishly. Why? asked Tabitha. Earlier, you seemed a little distraught. Hostile is the word you're looking for, Tabitha says, and that's my normal demeanor. <laughs> I'm figuring that out, says Scott. He gestures to Billy. I'm sorry. You didn't know her. It's called empathy, he says. Tabitha narrows her eyes at him, uncertain what he is getting at. <laughs> Not really your strong suit, is it? He asks. Do you want me to call someone for you? No, says Tabitha. You're just going to sit in here with her dead body? Yes. Okay, that's cool. Scott says. Cool? Tabitha asks incredulously. I mean, uh, Scott starts. I, I didn't mean cool, like cool. I meant like, if that's what you need to do, I understand. I don't like you, says Tabitha. He blinks furiously. Most people find me charming. Why? asks Tabitha. He laughs out loud then, a big unencumbered laugh. It seems to catch him off guard at first, but then he adjusts to it, settling into a prolonged chuckle. <laughs> because that's how I want them to see me, he says. For what it's worth, I like you. His honesty catches Tabitha off guard, and she smiles despite herself. Tabitha thinks, is this wording? She's suddenly aware of the small drab room, Billy's body, the silent machines beside her bed. It doesn't give much of a backdrop for flirting. If they were in a rom-com, would this conversation be their meet-cute? Scott leans against the wall and crosses his arms, casual yet awkward. In rom-coms, the boy might annoy the girl in the beginning, but she always gives him a second look. No matter how off-putting he is, she goes with her heart and sees the boy for who he really is. 
Tabitha can't feel her heart at the moment. If this is flirting, she's not sure what to think about it. She instinctively looks back at Billy, who is of no help. You sticking around for your dad's transition? Scott asks. No, he's a pro by now, Tabitha says. He doesn't really need me. I have to get back to college anyway. Oh yeah? What'd you study? He asks. Tabitha doesn't even think of lying. Nothing really, says Tabitha. My mom got sick when I was a freshman and I've been using college as an excuse to avoid her. Scott only nods and Tabitha wonders why he doesn't leave. What kind of a person doesn't run from a girl who admits such a terrible thing? There's no way this is flirting. You know, Scott says after a moment, it's not going to come. What's not going to come? Tabitha asks. The relief. He takes a step toward her. Tabitha is surprised to find she is genuinely listening. She is desperate for advice. It will taunt you, tease you. You'll smell its perfume. You will hear its whisper in your ear, but it will never show up. You'll never see its face. Scott leans in closer, suddenly raw. Frustrated and dissatisfied and angry. He says. That's your new normal. Tabitha takes a deep breath. He smells like disinfectant and oranges, which is oddly comforting. I'm sorry. He says softly, deflating. I shouldn't have said that. Scott's eyelids flap furiously again and Tabitha thinks of the schedules at train stations, slipping and clacking. She realizes she never texted Trent to tell her she would not make the band. Scott leans in, bringing her back at the moment and her stomach drops. He's definitely going to kiss her. Even though she thinks she wants to, she instinctively reaches back beside her and grabs her mother's dead hand at the same time. Scott sees this and immediately steps back. The expression on his face makes him look old, a lot older than Tabitha thought he was. I gotta go, he says and quickly backs out of the room. If this were a rom-com, Tabitha would feel rebuffed, but she would learn later the boy didn't pursue a kiss for her own protection. Tabitha stares down at her mother's silent, gallish face. This is definitely not a rom-com. She walks from the room to tell someone in charge that her mother is dead. Part 3. Transitioning After Billy's body is taken away, Tabitha heads back to her father's room. After her strange encounter with Scott, the tension inside her is electric. Contrary to this sensation is the feeling her feet are caked in cement, hardening with the weight of her promise to Billy. The fluorescent bulbs buzz overhead. The tiny, dark flecks in the white tile levitate. Tabitha thinks she's slogging through hyperspace with a hundred pounds on each foot. She finds the thought of black holes comforting. Her father's room is empty when she finally arrives. The bed is made, the pillow fluffed, awaiting the next person who's having the worst day of their life. She flags down a nurse in the hall. Mr. Ellison was taken to the transitioning ward, the nurse says. Already? Tabitha asks. They don't hang out here long after an organ crowns, says the nurse. 
The image of a golden crown tearing through her father's abdomen flashes before Tabitha's eyes. She grimaces. In the transitioning ward, Tabitha is told she must be decontaminated before she can visit her father. How long does that take? She asks the nurse. First, you have to strip everything. I mean, everything, and go into the chamber. The nurse says all this in a rote voice while she shuffles papers on her desk. Then you'll be doused with sanitizer, and then you'll be asked to put on a special little gown and cap and booties and gloves and a really uncomfortable mask. Tabitha has the feeling that the nurse is trying to dissuade her. There are other people walking by the nurse's station, and even though they don't say anything to the nurse, Tabitha's hyperspace awareness tells her they are communicating. I just need to say goodbye, Tabitha says, to my dad. Have you ever been on the transitioning ward before? Asks the nurse. No, Tabitha says. No. The nurse repeats. Because if you had, you'd understand that when you've got your guts hanging outside your body, it puts you in kind of a vulnerable position, you see? I understand, Tabitha says. Tabitha sighs, frowning. The red light of the telephone on the nurse's desk blinks. Tabitha wishes she knew Morse code. No, you don't, but you will. The nurse says, handing her a key and pointing her to a stand of lockers. You can leave all your belongings there. I can't take my purse in? You ever heard of organ snatching? Billy always warned Tabitha of being snatched when she was a child and they were out in a crowded mall. Stay close to me or someone will snatch you, Billy said, gripping Tabitha's hand and cutting her eyes suspiciously at the people milling about. Snatching is what happens when you let your guard down, when you don't pay enough attention. Black market organ sales have skyrocketed since inside-out disease, the nurse says. You can't defend yourself worth shit when you're transitioning. Half the patients in there are sedated because of the pain, but also because they psychologically can't handle seeing their organs outside their body. Before there was a protective protocol, it was like apple picking for organ thieves. You leave all of your personal belongings in the lockers, and before you come out of the decontamination chamber, a nurse will be there to examine you. Examine me? asked Tabitha. Nothing invasive. You just grab your ankles and cough, says the nurse. This feels like prison, says Tabitha. The nurse looks her straight in the eye. No, it's hell, she says. So just be grateful you're only a visitor. A door on the other side of the nurse's desk opens and a skinny guy wearing a red and white striped polo, just like Scott's, rolls a cart out of the chamber and down the hall. Where did that guy come from? Tabitha asks. He's a volunteer, says the nurse. They maintain the sprinklers. Sprinklers? Organs have to stay lubricated to maintain proper function. Otherwise, the exposure to the air dries them out. He didn't have to go through a decontamination, Tabitha points out. The volunteers go through a more thorough decontamination process than visitors. The nurse is losing patience. External and internal, including a high dose of vaccines. Would you rather be treated as a volunteer? Tabitha shakes her head. So are you in or out? 
I have to make some phone calls. Tabitha doesn't want to grab her ankles and cough. She wants to get on a train back to her non-life life. A life where she puts her mother's ashes in the back of the closet and never thinks of them. A life where she forgets her father even has inside-out disease. She will see him at Thanksgiving, as is their ritual. He will be recovered by then. There will be no reason to bring, to bring up Billy or his disease. They will discuss his golf game. He could go semi-pro. And her grades, another semester on probation. Yes, that was the thing to do. Avoid, avoid, avoid. But she promised her mother. Tabitha imagines her father waking up after the transition alone. He won't expect Tabitha to be there, but he will ask about Billy. This cold, no-nonsense nurse will tell him she's dead. Maybe that's what Billy had wanted all along. To hurt him? For the impersonal nurse to deliver the news of his dead ex-wife? Did Billy think Tabitha would flake on her promise? Frederick is not normally a reactive man. He is a slow-burn, brooding man a master at the hard stare and slow sidle out of the room in the midst of a heated argument. He had said that thing about her mother being beautiful and he seemed distraught when Tabitha said Billy was dying. How will Frederick react when he finds out Billy was dead? Tabitha needs to know. I'm in, she says to the nurse. Tabitha strips, Tabitha strips and is doused with chemicals and poked and prodded. On the door of the antechamber leading into the ward is a red sign with a hand reaching out to touch the drawing of a heart with a big X over it. Please, Please do not touch the organs. The sign reads. Tabitha puts her hand on her chest and feels her heart thumping underneath it. When she's finally admitted into the ward, she breathes heavily through a thick blue rubber charcoal mask, but she can still smell the heavily sterile ward. It feels thick and humid which only adds to Tabitha's claustrophobia inside the mask. The ward is also surprisingly quiet, except for the strategically timed sprinklers, which are really more like misters. A shh sound comes from each room as she passes. At first, Tabitha can't help but look into the rooms. She is surprised to find a majority of the patients are naked, sedated and naked, laid out on the metal beds like corpses. Tabitha gawks at the organs like she's in a carnival sideshow. She can't get an up-close look from the window. A lot of the rooms are foggy, but she catches glimpses of glistening insides and slimy mucus. She can just make out a liver sitting on top of someone's abdomen or kidneys on the back, the skin red and raw, blood oozing down the sides. Halfway down the hall, she hears a sound that stops her cold moans moans unlike anything she's ever heard moans befitting a dimly lit hospital ward tabitha wishes she had earplugs she shuts her eyes tight and prays the sound isn't coming from her dad she continues down the hall when she reaches the room with the source of the moaning the sound reverberates against the walls the sound fills up her brain Tabitha can make out the red and white striped polos of the volunteers. They are attempting to strap the patient down, but are delicate around his abdomen. Tabitha leans down to see which organ is transitioning. Then the two volunteers split, one on each side of the bed, and Tabitha sees it. 
a huge steamy gelatinous pile of intestines. There's a weird little barricade on each side of his torso. One of the gloved volunteers delicately picks up a section of intestine and flops it back on the piles. The man is screaming now, bucking, and the volunteer sticks him with a syringe, but it only makes the man buck more. Don't give me your drugs! The man screams. I don't want your drugs! Just put it back in! Put it back in! Tabitha has never seen anyone in such physical pain. Psychological and emotional pain she has covered, but physical pain on such an explosive level? Her own body tenses, her stomach burns. Are these sympathy pains, Tabitha wonders? Empathy pains? Is she going into sympathy failure? The hallway is filled with mist. Tabitha can't see where she's going. Her mask fogs up. She rips it off to bend over, ready to throw up. One of the volunteers, seeing her in the window, rushes out into the hall. Put your mask back on immediately, he says. When she looks up, it's Scott. His wet hair sticks to his head. His wet shirt sticks to his body. Tabitha? He says, surprised. He looks back into the room where the patient seems to be calming. Then he pulls her into an empty room. In here. Inside, he sits her into a chair and rolls her over to the hazardous waste material trash can. You going to puke? He asks, all business. She hugs the trash and gags. With one eye on the door, Scott strokes her back. When the dry retching subsides, Tabitha leans back and Scott hands her a cup of water. Feel better? He asks. She nods. I need you to put your mask back on. He says, I can't. You have to. I'll suffocate, says Tabitha. No, you won't, says Scott. Tabitha takes a couple of steady breaths then puts the mask back on. Scott smiles at her and adjusts the strap so it isn't quite as restrictive as before. Looks cute on you, he says. She flips him off and he laughs his big laugh again. He even goes as far as slapping his knee and shaking his head. The gesture is a familiar one, something Tabitha has seen her father do on hundreds of occasions, and it squeezes her heart like a vice. <laughs> I thought you were skipping out, says Scott. I am, she says. Tabitha chokes back a sob. Is my dad, Tabitha starts, is, is he like the man in that room? Is, is he in that much pain? Scott stares at her squinting like he first met her, like he is recalculating something. Then he reaches up and smooths her hair across her shoulder. No. He says. Your father chose sedation. Tabitha relaxes. And that man? She nods to the room across the hall. Unless they are extreme circumstances, sedation is elective. Some patients choose to tough it out. God. Tabitha feels another wave of nausea. Why would anyone choose so much pain? Come on, says Scott. I'll take you to your dad. Scott leads her down the hall, past other rooms with sedated patients, their organs resting on their bellies. Tabitha stops before one room that is dry. No misters. The patient, a young woman, is curled up in a ball, hugging her knees, quietly sobbing. What's wrong with her? Tabitha asks. When her uterus transitioned, says Scott, the doctor discovered a malignant tumor. 
so they had to remove it. The doctors in here do that, as Tabitha? Remove organs? They are trained in case it's necessary, he says, pulling her down the hallway. At her father's door, Tabitha doesn't hesitate to go in. Frederick's hooded eyes pop open. Tabitha, my jewel. His fingers twitch. You were gone. Here I am, Tabitha says, taking his hand. My liver's being bullied. He says, cracking a smile. I heard, she says. He looks so much paler and worn than when she saw him before. I feel different this time. He says, his brow furrowed. He tightens his hold on Tabitha's hand. He takes a deep breath. Your mother? Her father's face is red, flushed, full of pain, but still expectant, vulnerable, and the truth of it slices through Tabitha, hopeful. Damn you, Billy. She's dead, says Tabitha. Frederick closes his eyes. Then he is sobbing, a quiet, painful, and excruciating sob. Snot flows from his nose, tears flow from his eyes, blood flows from his chest. Billy. Frederick whispers. The word tears Tabitha in two. Billy. Grabs a handful of Tabitha's gown and pulls her down upon him, covering her in his snot and tears and blood. And then he's out, cold. His face weighted with a raw sadness she's never seen before, especially not on Frederick's face. Tabitha listens to the beep, beep, beep of the monitor by his bed, grows slightly faster, then becomes steady but still elevated. Beep, 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 beep. She glances down to see bubbles of gelatinous fat oozing out of the hole where the organ is pushing through. Ah! Tabitha jerks back. The misters come on, covering everything in a fine wet mist and fogging up the room. A thought comes to Tabitha through the haze, something ludicrous and incomprehensible, but if true, would explain so much. The door opens and Scott pokes his head back in. Time to go. He says, my parents. I think they were in love, says Tabitha. Scott comes all the way into the room. Oh, yeah? He says, but they were so mean to each other. Scott stands close to her just as he had at her mother's deathbed. Tabitha gets the feeling she's back in the weird rom-com. The misters rain down on them. Scott holds one of the organ dams up to shield her. Love isn't always logical, he says. Scott breathes in and Tabitha can feel the movement of the thick air. Then she leans up and she kisses him. Scott is a good kisser. At least he's better than the other boys she's kissed from a technical standpoint. Her brain knows it's a passionate kiss, but she doesn't feel it. The experience happens on the outside of her skin, floating above her sensory perception. It doesn't take long for her hair to darken and stick to her head, for her father's blood to roll down her cheeks. When they break away, Scott says breathlessly, You're wet. Tabitha nods, dazed. 
Oh, I hadn't noticed. But she does notice her father lying there, and then she notices the hole in his chest. The organ is coming out. The transition has started. But wait. Tabitha stares where the bubble is getting bigger and bigger, then down to the smooth abdomen, then back to his chest. It isn't Frederick's liver that is transitioning. Scott takes Tabitha's arm, pulling him back into an, pulling her back into an embrace, but she snatches it away. It's not his liver. It's his heart, Tabitha says. We have to get the doctor. No, Tabitha. Scott says evenly. What do you mean? She asks. Her head is swimming. Billy, Frederick, the kiss, the blood and gore. And now her father's heart is quite literally coming out of his chest. Tabitha's own heart is a drum banging a warning inside of her. Scott grabs her arm again, but this time he is not gentle. You have to go. Scott says. Tabitha looks behind Scott and from out of the dissipating mist, a metal tray emerges with several medical instruments laid out, among them a scalpel. Next to the tray is a small cooler. Tabitha remembers what the nurse said about organ snatching. Stay close to me, Billy always said. You're going to take his heart, Tabitha says. Scott turns reluctantly to look at her. Gone are the furiously blinking eyes and the awkwardness and whatever had been shared in their kiss. In front of her stands a man with a stoic, steeled face who makes every cell in Tabitha's body scream, danger. Another volunteer in a red and white striped polo walks past the window of the room. She tries to call out, but Scott pushes her against the wall. Tabitha. Scott says in a voice etched with low malice. I am the only friend you have in here. She tries to buck him away, but he does not loosen his grip. He presses himself against her. I can't stop this. They want his heart. He says. They will take his heart. If you try to stop them, they will take all of you. Do you understand? Tabitha swallows, pushing her tears down, nodding. A man with buzzed hair and piercing green eyes in the same red and white polo opens the door to Frederick's room. How are we doing? He asks. His voice is low and sympathetic, which makes it seem like the question is poised to Tabitha, the grieving family member. His eyes, however, are pinned on Scott, and Tabitha knows Scott's answer will determine her safety. Okay. Scott says, patting Tabitha's shoulder. I'm about to walk her out. The other volunteer leaves wordlessly. Here's what's gonna happen, says Scott. I'm going to walk you out the front door and then you're going to go on with your life and never say anything to anyone about this. Scott leads her out of the room, and Tabitha once again stares down at the black flecks and the tiles levitating around her. Frederick's room was warm and humid, and the coolness of the hallway makes Tabitha's face tingle. And she takes deep breaths of the cooler air, trying to steady herself, but her brain no longer exists. Scott gives her no time to recover. He pulls her down the hallway, past the room with the girl who lost her uterus, past the room where she threw up. Then finally, they are at the room where Tabitha will be decontaminated. Still in a daze, she puts her hand on the door, but Scott stops her. Tabitha? 
He starts, his voice softer, back to the timbre he used when he found her in Billy's room. Tabitha sees now his face is lined and rugged. He is much older than she thought he was, at least by ten years. His eyes are blinking furiously, and Tabitha knows his softness is genuine, or at least what passes for genuine in a man like Scott. Tabitha can still feel the pressure of his tongue in her mouth. I just want to say... Before he can continue, another volunteer comes down the hallway, and Scott reaches behind her to open the door, push her through, and quickly close it again. There are 15 steps to walk through the chamber, and another dozen to change back into a regular close. The nurse's desk is empty when Tabitha comes out of the transitioning ward. It takes 25 steps to get to the elevator. Tabitha spots a hazy, distorted reflection of herself in its wall. She realizes she's still wearing her mask and rips it off. On the ground floor, sound returns. People hustle and bustle through the hallway. Pages come over the PA. Someone yells, someone cries. Various machines whirl and beep. Tabitha looks frantically for a trash can and plunges the mask inside as though discarding the mask can discard the last 24 hours of her life. Above the trash can, a TV plays a news segment about another group of people who've sacrificed themselves in the name of inside-out disease. The deaths were en masse. It was just all too ugly, they said in the note they left behind. Tabitha thinks about getting on the train, about the feel of the ticket in her hand, about the din of the station, and she thinks about how she wants to sit on a seat facing the opposite direction the train is moving so that she can say inertia is pulling her away and not her own decisions. Tabitha follows the wide yellow line to the main hospital entrance and stops in front of the large double doors which open and close as people scurry in and out and around her, pushing her outside, then back in, then outside again, and she lets herself float unable to make the transition. The end. Woo! Megan, you did that. (laughs) Yay, good job, Jeremy. I enjoyed your voices. Thank you very much. It's it's (laughs) more fun to do it when nobody has to look at my face. Yeah. You mentioned that earlier about how like you enjoyed acting without eyes on you. It's so stupid. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, that's one of the reasons why I never wanted to be like a film actor is that you get recorded. Yeah. Carrie Russell talked about that in the new Star Wars movie. She talked about she's a Mandalorian, I think. Uh And uh, she has to wear a mask. So nobody sees her face and she she was talking in an interview about how like freeing that was. That's cool. To act in a mask. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I like writing is because you can act in your characters, you know, and then then you have that, you know? Yeah, that's a, oh, that's an interesting point. I like that. Yeah, so Megan, um, we are going to do this differently. So Megan will not be jump jumping in a cranky talk. <laughs> oh, thank goodness, I can't no cranky talk. We're just gonna go <laughs> straight into the interview. Megan, like, <laughs> Do you remember when you started writing this piece? Hmm. Yeah, it's been a few years. I first started writing it, I think about five years ago and um, wrote the, like 
wrote the majority of it then are like kind of the outline of it, you know, the, the, the sketch of the prose and, and Tabitha and the situation. Um, but then it wasn't until like the last year, I guess, that I, that I came back to it and really felt like I would finish it. Do you remember why you started writing it? Like, what was it that started this? Was there like a, a kernel or anything that you started I was, with? I was trying to, I was thinking about this earlier. I was trying to remember what, like, what was the impetus of the story? And usually I can, re I can remember quite easily the, the feeling of, of this, the, the feeling of the beginning of the story and kind of like as the story comes to me. But for some reason, this one was just not, I don't know. I can't, I can't really remember like the exact moment or anything, but I think, um, I think it, it came out of um, trying to work through like being at a time in my life where I felt like I was trying to separate myself a little bit from my parents or like felt just that, a, you know, that time in your adult life when you realize that your parents are people and you're a person and you're kind of, you're kind of on the same level now. You're not, you're not, you'll always be, their child but but you get to know them on a different level than just being their child and yeah. and and that was kind of coming into uh like full bloom i think about that time and so i was thinking a lot about like i don't know like the ending of things but also like a separation and and this was you know I've, as a writer i feel like writing a story is a way of of trying to work through awkward emotions that you're having about things that you don't quite understand. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think that was, um, that was kind of the, the impetus of that, but I've just loved, um, I wish I could remember how I got the idea for inside out disease, because it's something that I just kind of, I'm kind of fascinated with, um, this whole idea of like our, our insides coming out and like what it, what it means to like, recognize that you're this like physical thing as opposed to being like thinking of ourselves as our brains you know we think we're we think we're impenetrable we think that yeah. we're nothing can touch us because we live inside our brains but when we start thinking of ourselves as like these physical things with like all these organs and goops inside of us it it makes us feel so vulnerable tmi time my fourth grade teacher like she had like baby chicks like we we hatched baby chicks out of eggs and um i think my egg didn't hatch and then there was all the chicks came out and then one of the chicks like was born with its organs outside of its body and it was it was insane and i don't i don't know why my i don't know if it was just me but like my teacher was like hey can you make sure you take care of this baby chick um, and it was just so disturbing, you know, just seeing something that you, mm. you knew, like this is not natural and that it's going to die. Mm. And just seeing its insides, like on the outside of its body, it was just, I mean, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And just how good the teacher was with that because, you know, chicks, they, they uh, connect to whoever they see first. And I guess the chick saw her first and she was just so sweet with that baby bird until yeah. it died. But yeah, I, I just thought about it now, um, how crazy it was seeing organs on 
outside of a creature, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of, I mean, I know you don't know where the inside out thing came, but like, what did it mean to you as you were writing it? Like, what does it mean to you? Um, to me, it means, it means vulnerability. Like it means vulnerability to the point that you're completely at the mercy of others. Mm. And I think that's like, that's what love is. You know, that's what unconditional love is. You know, that's what feeling responsible for someone else is. It's that, that, you know, you almost can't contain your feelings and, or at least that's been my experience, you know, of, of when you, when you love someone on a certain level, it, it, it makes me feel like that vulnerable, like having my insides on the outside and these very delicate, this very delicate part of myself that's like exposed and there's nothing I can do about it. And I have to rely on someone else to yeah, that's cool. manage it. And, um, so I kind of feel like in this world, in Tabitha's world, that's what's happening. Like everybody is, and that's why like people who don't even have inside out disease are still suffering because they see it all. Right. And it, it just reminds them of themselves and it reminds them of their vulnerability. And I think at this point in Tabitha's life, she just feels so vulnerable because she's losing her parents and she's trying to assert her independence. And it's just, you know, it's all so awful for her right now. Some people might be wondering about the ending, Megan. So what does the ending with Tabitha mean to you? Yeah, so I I kind of went back and like I always, I remember when I first wrote the story feeling like Tabitha would, we wouldn't know which way Tabitha was going to go. Like I wanted to leave a little bit of this ambiguity as like, is she going to turn around or is she going to walk out? Is she, you know, like, what is she, what is she going to do? And I wrote a version where she left and then I wrote a version version where she turned around and went back into the hospital. And I wrote a version where like, you know, she like joins this whole like spy team to fight the organ snatchers. <laughs> that's the longer version. I'm assuming it's the longer version. Yeah. That's like the TV series. But, um, those were never satisfying because I, I kind of, I felt like Tabitha needed to be trapped in this nebulous space for a while. You know, she kind of, she kind of comes at the beginning of the story. She's, 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 we meet her in a dynamic with her mother that she's always had. It's like the lane that she's always been in. And then I, in the end, I wanted her to be in a, in a situation where she didn't know where to go or what to do and be very, disconcerted and in this hazy space and things not be clear. Um, and so it, it just made sense to me and felt right to me to, to end with, with that feeling because she doesn't know what to do now. She's kind of at a loss. Also, do you, do you remember with the diseases, like having something so real, something that affects so many people, mm -hmm. um, do you remember what gave you the idea to put that disease, cancer, with inside out disease? Um, let me think. <laughs> I don't know if I remember. Um, well, I wanted um, I wanted the interaction with Tabitha and her mother to be grounded in something real, 
and mm. something that people could people could know people would know you know that they would they would recognize and it would be of their own world and they would say okay this is this is real life this is a real relationship with real problems and a real goodbye and before then shooting them and Tabitha into this bonkers world where you know there's inside out disease and organ snatching and you know the hyper real things happening um but i felt like the story needed it needed something um that the audience would would recognize in the beginning before they got taken off into crazy land yeah one of my favorite parts is the mother and the relationship with the daughter i just really like that and i it's messed up, but I love that she's like, make sure you let your father know that I have died. <laughs> Just the last spiteful moment, you know, that she has won. She is the one that won. I, mm -hmm. Something about that is so messed up, but good. There's almost kind of like a, a real dull kind of tone to it for me, like at the beginning, just this weird twisted humor, mm -hmm. like kind of mm -hmm. dark, but also like um, funny in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I was going for. Like I kind of imagined like the scene where Tabitha's where Billy is telling Frederick, you know, drink out of the mug and he's like, you know, he's adjusting his tie and he's walking out of the room and she's drinking from the coffee and then there's Tabitha there watching it all. Like that kind of reminded me of a of like a perverse Dick and Jane book or something, you know, like mm. like taking a scene that's supposed to be like a quintessential family scene and the dad's going to work and the mom's staying home and the daughter's eating breakfast, but yet it's like ripe with uh, tension and spite, you know? Um, so I, I wanted it to have that kind of, kind of humor in how like subversive it was. Megan, is there anything else that you want us to know about the piece? Like, hmm. what, what do you want us to leave with with the piece? I don't know. I guess um, just thank you for letting me share it. I mean, it has been uh, a labor of love and uh, has been a, an interesting journey. Like, this story has been different than other stories that I've written. And it's been more, um, it's kind of been a stretch for me because I was working with a different structure and doing something a little bit different with Tabitha and going from being grounded in something and then moving into something that's less grounded and less, you know, more like weird. Uh, so I, I've just enjoyed that, that process, even though it's been challenging. Well, Megan, thank you for showing us your organ. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I hope you didn't mind that we were poking at it a little bit. No, I didn't. I didn't mind that. You can put it back inside. Yeah, I'm going to stick it. I'm going to stick it back inside. <laughs> Ooh, we got another episode in, Megan. Ooh, that was exciting. Yeah, so that there's is. two more left for this season. Oh, I'm getting a note. What does the note say? Oh, Ooh, we have our, our producer, Mark, is giving us a note. Um, we have, we have, oh, oh I didn't even see these happening. Oh, hello you? there. We have JC. Oh, JC. JC. We love her. She was one of our oh. authors for this season. You all have to definitely check out her piece if you are into erotica. 
Yes, absolutely. JC's amazing. She says, whoop, whoop, awesome story. And then she's. I love how supportive she is. Like she's so sure supportive is. of other authors, which I really. Oh, that's so cool. Wow, that's so neat. And then Maureen, who is also super supportive. She's in every episode. <laughs> um, she says, wow, intriguing story, Megan. Interesting take on dealing with medical issues of parents, family, and being faced with everything at the same time. The concept of inside out disease is so interesting. Oh, thank you, Maureen. And then your godfather says, a <laughs> bit disconcerting, though, as I was drinking out of a water burger styrofoam cup. <laughs> I bet he put that aside for a hot second. Maybe he looked it up on uh, health, health med or whatever it's called, just to mm -hmm. make sure it was like a make-believe disease. Yeah. Well, hopefully the beverage in his Whataburger cup is cold and not hot. So. <laughs> That's <laughs> cool. I didn't even know we had comments. That's great. You got a lot of comments, Megan. Yay. I'm so glad Ooh. Bruce was I'm so glad Bruce was there tonight. Yeah. Um so everyone, thank you for tuning in. And we are also on the podcast platform. So if you saw us on YouTube and at any point you're just like on the go and you need something to listen to, you can find us on Spotify, you can find us on Stitcher, you can find us on Apple, you can find us on all the ones that matter. That's right, and it's so easy, you just download the app onto your phone and then you can download any one of our stories and take us with you whenever you go. You can listen to us while you're cleaning, while you're riding in the car. Uh, I love to to listen to audiobooks while I'm doing the dishes because I don't like doing dishes. So get, take us with you. At the same time. Yeah, let yeah. people know that we're here because we're free. We're free mm -hmm. and here, we're just here for entertainment for you. And we're also yeah. on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And if you use our Twitter, it is hashtag, <laughs> hashtag NRSS podcast. <laughs> I zoned out for a second, sorry you all. <laughs> uh, and then Megan, you have a website. I do. It's MeganAMorrison.com. And if you sign up for notifications, you will get emails when I post something about any of the projects I'm working on. And Jeremy, you have a website. No. Yes, I do. <laughs> I have a website. It's uh, JeremyRayStories.com. And every week I release a new micro story of 100 words or less. And if you subscribe, you'll get one of those delivered to your email every Tuesday. Yes. And um, Jeremy, don't you want to tell everybody about what happened on Friday? I don't want to say anything at all. <laughs> so oh, Jeremy well, hello there, book. Oh my gosh, that's my name. I guess I wrote this. Let's see. Jeremy is holding up a copy of his, his latest novella. It's called Petrified Women by Jeremy Ray. And turn it around and let me show you, let me read the log line. Some pranks go too far. This one could be deadly. It's amazing. It's on Amazon. <clears throat> Please go and, and buy it and download it and read it. And you will not be disappointed. I'm so proud of Jeremy it, that he that he got this book. This is his third book. So he's he's really killing it with um, with self-publishing right now. So make sure that you you check out his book and all of his other books that he has available. And we got two more things to say. Speaking of writers doing awesome things, we have 
two more left. And by the two more, that means that we're going to need more writers that are super talented. And we're counting on you all to let us know who we need to have on the show. So if you have really good writers or writers you think might be really good, make sure you have them check out our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. All the information is found on there, like what they need to be able to submit. And then we'll read them and hopefully we'll have some of them on the next season. Yeah, so tell your friends. And we love showcasing all different stories. So if you've been listening this season, you know, we've had sci-fi, we've had erotica, we've had drama, we've had weird stories about organs coming out of people's bodies. So, um, you know, we're committed to showcasing all voices. And so please, please tell your friends about uh, our opportunity because we more than anything want to be a platform for people who might not have a platform otherwise. Absolutely. And we want this to be a place where people who said like before they didn't like short stories, they're like, well, actually, I like that short story. Mm -hmm. And actually, I like that one, too. And actually, that one offended me. But I felt something on that short story (laughs) because Megan, didn't you have a friend that said, I don't like short stories. And now she tell that story. That's really fascinating. Oh, yeah. I had a I have a friend out in Los Angeles who uh, told me that she was like, oh, I'm not really into short stories. But after listening to your podcast, she went out and bought a collection of Shirley Jackson short stories. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shirley Jackson, she wrote The Lottery and other um, wonderful horror short stories that you would recognize. And uh, so now she's a, now my friend is a short story fan. Which is hilarious because Shirley Jackson is pretty much read by everyone in high school and college. She is what people think of with short yeah. stories. So it's funny that <laughs> your friend Megan watched this show and it's like, oh, I'm gonna go back and do Shirley Jackson, that's neat. Yeah, yeah, she's a, she was a huge fan. Um, oh, speaking of fans, if you're a fan of Nobody Reads Short Stories, you should go to our website and check out our merchandise because we have pillows and we oh. have shirts and we have cell phone cases. And- I bet you pillow were very disappointed because <laughs> I forgot about you. And I, I would have been probably oh, suffocated by this pillow. pillow in my sleep because this pillow wants its attention. That's right. We can't forget. We can't neglect the pillow. And you can have a pillow just like this. It's black. It's purple. It's orange. It's white. It's uh, it's lively. It livens up any room. So buy several. Buy Check several pillows. And, and make sure that you, if you haven't already, go to our YouTube page and like and subscribe. We would love to have, our goal is to get 150 subscribers this season. And we are so close. I think we're at 141. So if you are listening and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Get your friends to subscribe. Tell your author friends to subscribe. Yeah. And Megan, we have a piece by Hadley Moore next week, right? That's right. I'm so excited. Please join us next week on Monday night for um, Ordinary Circumstances by Hadley Moore. Hadley is a fantastic writer. She had a new collection of short stories that came out in 2019, and um, you're not going to be disappointed. No, and it's going to be a different story, just like they all have been. It's a very interesting story. We we can't wait to hear what you thought, and we'd also like to know what you thought about this episode. Also, let us know what stories that you would like to hear in the future, what genres. Like, we're always on the lookout for something that you all recommend. And I think that's it, Megan. I think that's it.
All right. Thank High you, five, everybody. everyone. Woo. Have a great night. We'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories. Funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads short stories anymore.